and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Today's podcast focuses on beauty and the intersection between science and art. To start off with a quick story, in my first lab job, I was working with rats, and I had to get dye into a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's the one that plays a big role in setting your internal clock. Eventually, we would remove the rat's brain, cross-section it, and study the sections under a microscope. The dye would allow us to see the details in brain cells we were trying to study. Without it, there's not enough contrast to really see what's going on. I'm not going to go into too much detail in case anyone listening is really squeamish. I'll just say that the suprachiasmatic nucleus is right next to where the optic nerves cross. And rats aren't any more cooperative about getting dye in their eyes than I would be. It took me forever to finally get a usable brain section. And when I did, at last, to be honest, I got pretty teared up, largely from the relief, but also because it's just amazing to see violet neurons, especially for the first time. It was gorgeous. Now, in this example, I'm definitely biased by my involvement in the research, but I'd bet a lot that most people would agree with me. Scientific images are beautiful, not only for the process or results they represent, but often on their own aesthetic merit. So, is science artistic? Einstein thought so. He said, After a certain high level of technical skill is achieved, science and art tend to coalesce in aesthetics, plasticity, and form. The greatest scientists are always artists as well. What do you think? As it happens, the American Museum of Natural History here in New York has an exhibition about the beauty of scientific imaging called Picturing Science. We'll hear from the exhibition's curator, Dr. Mark Siddall, about the overlap between science, art, beauty, and learning. Hello. Thanks for being here. To start off, what sparked the idea for this exhibition? I hit on this idea. Well, instead of it being specifically about a topic, just let the topic be the science that goes on behind the scenes at the museum and turn it into almost an art exhibit, one that shows that there is this beautiful aesthetic that goes into how we scientists visualize the work that we do and how we represent it. And that was sort of the spark. It evolved over time. Uh, we needed a, a place in the calendar, obviously, to put it on the wall. We also, obviously, there's always funding issues, and we got to a critical point, I guess, about four years ago, where the project got greenlit, and we started running with some ideas. And it was really kind of interesting, because I, I took the concept to my fellow curators and scientists here at the museum across all divisions, and I said, what I want is I want the most beautiful images from your science as you see them as beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that was the point. It wasn't about this. I mean, obviously, there's a subtext about the science that's being done. There's another subtext about the technology involved in the science. But we've even arranged some of these things as art and series on the wall. It's really done so that when people walk into the hallway, they're struck by, in many cases, an abstract beauty or something else about the images. It's really about the images. The scientists, through their work, will have a different connection to the images than visitors viewing them on the wall. Do the scientists have a different standard of aesthetics when they're considering which images to submit? And do they see a different kind of beauty than the lay observer? 
I, there might be. I think there's an, I mean, obviously every scientist really sees a great deal of beauty in their work. Um, and the notion that art and science are work in different worlds, I think, is a mistake. And that's a mistake that I think we're trying to underscore here is that, is that in many respects, art and science are the same thing. It's about observing the world around you through your eyes and, and interpreting. So the scientists will have a different connection, maybe a deeper personal connection with an image that's on the wall in picturing science. Uh, but that's really not very different than an artist who, who paints a piece and they have a connection and they're seeing something and they know all the layers of acrylic paint that are lying underneath the acrylic paint that you see. Um, and they know the history of how that piece evolved from initial concept to uh, final production. There are scads and scads of, of fine art dissertations devoted to such, such topics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, that, and the fact that the person who experiences the art experiences it differently than the artist is, is really kind of the same in a way, if you think about it. Do aesthetic choices play any role in doing the scientific research that produce these images? In terms of the actual aesthetic choices that go into the images, I understand that each of these images that, that are in picturing science were taken with a scientific point in mind. They weren't taken for this exhibit. They weren't created for this exhibit. These are real images that are used in real research for real purposes. And yet, in the choice of doing it, let's take with a, a CT scan. There's a beautiful piece in there by Neil Landman, and it's a synchrotron radiation CT scan of the tiny little teeth of an ancient mollusk that lived in, that was found in a chunk of rock. And to get at that, they had to use high-energy uh, x-rays. Mm -hmm. The information is contained in a computer in volumetric form. But he spent a lot of time playing with the artificial direction of a light source. There's no, there's no real light source. You're, in order to show the three-dimensionality of the object on a two-dimensional plane, you have to choose a direction for where the light comes from mm -hmm. to create shadows and contrast in, in a way that reveals the things that you're looking for. The decisions for that are not, were not based entirely on information content. They were based on what makes it look cool. Images can be really compelling. So what's the relation between image and proof in science? Well, ultimately, pictures are a form of evidence, right? They're a form of evidence for us and they're a form of evidence for people who we're trying to convince. And I think you're right. The looking at a graph that shows how a glacier has receded, somehow, although it may be more informative, is less compelling, perhaps. It's less immediate than allowing someone to see with their own eyes a photograph of a glacier 50 years ago and where the front of that glacier is now and seeing the dramatic difference between the two. And that's what it is. It's the drama. It's the contrast. And being able to see with your own eyes. We make those decisions. I'm convinced that we make those decisions as scientists. We may have a series of, let's say, electron microscopy images that together show a particular structure that we're interested in highlighting in a scientific publication where we're, say, describing a new species of spider. There are examples of this on the wall. Mm -hmm. And yet, 
we probably won't publish a scientific paper with 40 images in it that get to the point in the most acute way. There's a certain amount of leeway that's given to allow the scientist to describe what the scientist has seen in the totality of all the images. And then the, the scientist who's writing the paper will probably make a decision about which one, two, or few images that get to the point to show. And that decision is not going to be based entirely on the information content of those particular images. It may be that the spider has got a particularly striking pose, or it may be that the, the angle of the electrons gave a contrast that sort of backlights it, lights it in, a, in a way that, that, that makes it look dramatic. You want to capture your reader's imagination. You want to capture the reviewers of your work's imagination. You want to capture your, the people who are looking at your grant proposal's imagination as much as you want to be informative. And I think both of these things come into play with how we see our own science. How can this be leveraged as an educational tool? Oh, from an educational point of view, images are the very first thing that we use. Whether it's like a science cafe that happens here, I think the first Wednesday of every month, or a public program, or if I go to a scientific conference and I'm trying to educate my colleagues, or if I'm giving a lecture, we all use presentation slides. We're all using imagery, and there's a reason for that. It's a quicker more capturing way to convey an idea or a series of ideas than reading everything linear in a book. I'm not saying, I'm not knocking books. I mm. love books. Written text is, is information that's passed in serial form. If I put up an image, or better yet, if I put up an image and I rotate it, the human brain is capable of almost parallel processing in an instant, and you can convey the aha much more efficiently than trying to describe everything that you see in a written way. Now, of course, we still have to write it down and we still have to describe it in, in that way, but when accompanied by images, it's just incredibly powerful. A lot of the images in the exhibition are generated by technologies that are relatively new. So they're kinds of images that nobody has ever been able to see until pretty recently. How does access to this kind of enhanced imaging capability change the way that scientists consider their methods and what sorts of ideas they want to or are able to work with? That's a great question. I think that the sorts of things that we're interested in seeing in the kind of science we do here at the museum has, has changed somewhat, but a lot, of the, a lot of the things that we want to look at are the same things that we've wanted to look at for a very long time. It could be some particular structure. Uh, there, there's an inordinate number of um, images of insect whackers, shall we say, uh, male genitalia. It turns out these are very important characters for telling species apart. And they've been the things that entomologists have been looking at for a long time. It used to be done with a regular light microscope using light. And then someone invented electron microscopy. And instead of firing photons, like you do with a light bulb, uh, at an object, you can fire electrons and get a much, much more detailed representation of what that thing looks like in higher magnification. Then someone invented confocal 
microscopy where you could get a three-dimensional representation using laser light and have that information in a computer that you can turn and spin in real time and see all the structures from all different angles. And then someone came up with micro computed tomography, micro CT scanning, and now you don't even have to remove the object necessarily from the insect. You can just scan the whole thing and go in in virtual space and do it. So the objects that we're looking at may not be different, but the ways that we can visualize them and I hesitate to use a postmodernist artistic term like contextualize them, uh, but it's appropriate. See them in the context of the whole animal has changed. There are some things that we wouldn't have been able to see. And it's not just the minutia of the things that we've always been interested in. Let's take the work that Denton Abel has done and is, is on the wall regarding the structure of meteorites. For a long time, you've been able to take meteorites, slice them in half, and see that they're not uniform. There are little globules of various things that have accreted over time into a particular meteorite spinning around in space. What are those things made of? Well, historically, you could get in there with a, a some sort of hard object and, and try to grind some pieces away and do some chemical experiments on them. And that would tell you whether there's aluminum or iron, molybdenum, or some other element. But what they used in the uh, very Andy Warhol-esque series that's on the wall, very brightly colored, what they used instead was something called an electron microprobe. You can take this thing, and it fires electrons at the surface. And then based on the energy of things bouncing back, you can tell what it's made of. You're not destructively sampling it. That's a positive. And you get exquisite detail about the elemental characters as you're going across. And you can do this at a very, very, very fine resolution. And all that they've done in the imagery is convert the discovery of what element is there to a, col a color. It's false color. Mm -hmm. They could use shades of gray, but it's much more dramatic if you use magenta and aquamarine and lemon yellow. Because <laughs> <laughs> we see with our eyes first. When you mention virtual spaces, it reminds me of the About This Exhibition video on the museum website. You mentioned an example of a case of a knife that an anthropologist was working with that he couldn't remove from its sheath. And you used imaging technology to reveal writing on the knife without actually uncovering it. It's really interesting to think about this ability to see without actually seeing and the power of this technology to reveal a whole new view that was recently impossible. Yeah, and that's the, the, the CT scanning stuff is pretty neat. It's relatively new here at the museum. It, it had, we had really only just gotten the machine in-house uh, in advance of putting picturing science on the wall. And in fact, getting that most latest machine may have been really part of the, the impetus to move forward because we had a lot, a lot more stuff. Um, What's interesting about that particular example, the, the, the knife in the sheath, is that under the right circumstances, you could have simply x-rayed the thing. And normal x-rays on a flat screen or a flat piece of film would go through, and you could get some contrast, let's say, to see what writing was on the knife. The problem was is that the sheath was woven with lead. <laughs> x-rays don't go through lead very well. I mean, they do go through, 
But if the thing outside is more dense than the thing inside, well, that's it. You're not going to see the thing inside with a flat x-ray. Now, it turns out with CT scanning, that's very different. And the way that that works is you don't just take one image. You actually take a whole series of images with the object rotating in space. And sort of just like if you're out in a park and you're looking at a tree, you may only see one tree, but if you move to the left, you may see the other tree behind it. And if you move further to the left, you'll see more of the tree behind it, and eventually you'll see two trees. And so if you walk in a circle around something, you actually get a sense of how many trees are inside, even though you couldn't see them all to begin with. It's a reasonable way to think about how CT scanning works. What's important here in terms of the use of CT scanning at a museum is that it's not destructive. So we don't have to wreck the object to see what's inside. And that's very important for a museum of natural history where the collections are really our bread and butter. And we just go around cutting them up all into pieces. We're left with pieces of things instead of the things themselves. So as anyone with Photoshop could tell you, images are really easy to manipulate. And especially with some of this imaging being pretty new, where are the, the lines between what's interesting but still within the boundaries of what's accurate? Or to put it another way, how do you make sure that it's true? That's interesting. I suppose with the power of digital imaging, there's a lot more, I guess it's easier to fudge. It would be easier to fake things. It would be easier to make stuff up and to alter and so forth using powerful graphics software packages on our powerful computers. But this, I mean, it fundamentally goes to whether or not you think people are fundamentally honest. And this is also why, don't forget that, that any piece of, of science that gets out there has to be peer-reviewed. It has to be reviewed by people working in the field. Typically, that's three people. And then there's an associate editor that handles that. And then there's an editor. So there's a lot of checks and balances. Um, the notion that you can alter a photograph or an image to show to basically to lie is hardly new. <laughs> it goes right. back to the origins of photography. And so really, if the, if the motivations for lying haven't changed, haven't become more common, which I don't believe they have, then the frequency with, with, with which people will alter images to try to show something that isn't there won't have changed at all either. I don't think there's any more or less of it now because we have different technology. Liars are liars, right? I mean, it's, it's not about the images, it's about the person. I was also wondering about the reception to the exhibition. Have you gotten different types of feedback from scientists and artists or from people who wouldn't self-identify as either? Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, there, the, the the reaction you get, you just it's funny because I and I this is a a bit of um, I don't know a slight conceit I suppose. <laughs> I'll go down there to the Akeley corridor, the Akeley Gallery corridor, if I've got some spare time in a day just to see what's going on, and you see amazing reactions from people from the public, the visiting public who are coming through and they'll gravitate to something and you'll see them point 
And it's amazing how many fingerprints are on the images now. Um, but they're holding up quite well, and it's fine if people it's fine if people touch as long as they don't scratch. Uh, the 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 fascination you'll see in people's eyes, the way that they approach it. Some are just fascinated with the images themselves. Others go up really close so that they can read the small print about what it was, and then they'll step back with a, a jolt. Oh my God, is that what it is? Um, so just the, the the visitors to the museum, I am overjoyed at the diversity of reactions from anyone who's six years old to 96 years old and how they approach it and how they receive it. So I think it's successful in that regard. We've had some, some great feedback from everything from the sort of techno-intelligentsia when we had a, a, a gawker tweet, a tweet up here very shortly after the exhibition opened to friends of mine who are in the art world who appreciate it. They think it's a little bit odd, <laughs> but they appreciate the intent of blurring the lines between art and science to others who either from the art world or from whatever, whatever are like, Oh my God, that's really cool technology. I wonder what I can use it for. Interesting. So, so people becoming interested in, can they use the, the, our imaging technology, not necessarily right here in the museum, although I can entertain that, <laughs> for purely aesthetic purposes as opposed to science purposes that can reinterpreted as aesthetic purposes? You hear the phrase crisis in communication in science, this idea that a lot of research, especially basic research, doesn't have anything to do with non-scientists. I've also heard it suggested that pictures are a great way of bridging the gap between the lab and the public. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Do you see this as a trend or a direction in which science communication might be going? I, you know, I actually think the ivory tower is a lot shorter than it used to be. Um, I think citizens are much more aware of science and the activities that go on in the sciences than, than ever before. And I think that scientists, faculty, curators, postdocs, what have you, similarly are much more aware of their roles as citizen scientists and the need to communicate their ideas to the public. These, the issues of communication of science is an always evolving one because technology is always evolving. The number of faculty members who were hired, let's say in the 1960s and 70s, uh, that wish to communicate their science, if they really want to do it, then they got to learn how to use Twitter and Facebook and how to blog and so forth. Um, and, you know, people get sort of stuck in their ways and you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And, and that is more a part of that kind of inertia on relearning how to communicate as the modes of communication change is always a cha challenge for the scientists. And, and, um, I think they should, I think people should be understood for that. I mean, it's no different than, you know, your great aunt Mabel who doesn't tweet or get on Facebook. Um, so I think it's a constant challenge. I wouldn't call it a crisis. I don't really think there's a crisis in communication in science. There may be a crisis in whether or not some people pay attention. There can be crises in the politicization of, of, science or topics about science. Um, and as uh, my friend Neil deGrasse Tyson once said, 
the thing about facts is they really don't care what your opinion is. <laughs> and and I think that that sometimes that's the real crisis that's going on is it. There's a, there's a feeling that we as scientists should be doing more. I'm not going to disagree that we should be doing more, but there's also the need for responsible journalism and responsible interpretation by the public and responsible interpretation by politicians. So do you think that image creation and dissemination has a role to play in this? And what might that role be? Oh, of course. Of course it does, for the same reasons that that images are an incredibly powerful way to teach in a classroom setting, as opposed to just handing someone a book and saying, read this and regurgitate it back. Images are always going to be a powerful and compelling way to engage the public in terms of understanding science and seeing it as cool. This is why newspapers have journalists around the world and they're sent with photographers because a I'm not even going to use the words about how many, how many words a picture paints and all that. Um, it's very cliche, but it's but it's absolutely true. Um, one of the most important skills that I know I convey to the students and postdocs that work under me is how to capture their science in compelling ways in imagery, how to compose the plates in a in a in a way that's that's dramatic and cool, and how to get their presentations together for meetings that they go to in a way that's visually compelling. Clear, concise, and cool. <laughs> awesome. The, the three C's. <laughs> that's great. What's your favorite part about doing this exhibit, Ben? My favorite, I'm so glad that you didn't ask me which my favorite, what, which image was my favorite. I refuse to answer it every time. That'd be like, well, what's your favorite Rembrandt? Um, <laughs> uh, the fa my favorite part about this particular exhibit is really an internal one uh, here at the at the museum. We had a curator who was very interested. He was an a curator in anthropology, uh, Craig Morris, who was extremely interested in the intersections of art and science. And he was getting together a working group of people to sit around and talk about such things when he unexpectedly uh, passed away. And in a sense, by getting scientists from across every single scientific division and department in the museum to come together and do that blurring of the lines between art and science is something that I think he would have been really happy to see and in a very private, well, I guess less private now that I'm talking to you, way, um, it was a, a bit of a tribute to him. Thank you so much. If you haven't seen it, go check out the exhibition, Picturing Science, Museum Scientists and Imaging Technologies. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more on this topic and other science news, check out scienceandthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Feel free to email us anytime at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. We always love hearing from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>